clients, no matter the size, are always a bit nervous. They're always thinking, oh, I'm about to put out all this money. Will this work? And so demonstrating that you can deliver, building that trust um, is a big part of this. And then that's outside of everything else that you're doing. Yeah, that's that's almost like agnostic to what type of consultant you are, right? You can be a digital consultant, you can be a design consultant, you can be an ID consultant, but across the board, building that trust and then giving them confidence that what that you're there to help them and that they can trust you is one of the biggest things. Fractional is where you gain expertise from top consultants in AI, software engineering, and design. Andre Gonzalez is a multidisciplinary design mentor, human-centered design evangelist, and current senior manager for service and experience design for Deloitte Digital Canberra. He has 20 years of professional experience in the digital industry across design, consulting, and digital innovation. He held roles as an experienced architect, manager, and designer at companies like Salesforce, Fjord, BCG Digital Ventures, and the billion-dollar startup Envision App. In this episode, we talk about building trust with clients as a consultant, using workshops for workshops to uncover client dynamics, pricing your work, and treating every bid as a high-risk assumption. Thanks for tuning in. This is your co-founder from Swarm, Alexis Coliado. Hello, Andre. So we're going to have a live fractional episode here. Um, so I'm Andre Gonzalez, um, originally from the Philippines, moved to Australia pretty much 10 years ago. My journey started, I would say, actually started in the UK. So this is a long time ago as well. So I started doing, I started as a developer um, and then from learning how to do code, I decided I wanted to do design more. Um, and so I started a consultancy in the Philippines, um, which I ran for a little while. Um, I worked with a number of big brands that some of you might know, such as Envision. Um, we were one of the original crew that um, was part of that. In fact, the original um, investor deck is still with me, which was the initial <laughs> investing. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, so I still have that deck. Um so to get the initial investor um, funding. And then when I moved to Australia, I joined BCG Digital Ventures. Then um, I was there for a couple of years. Then I moved on to join Fjord. Um, Fjord at the time was the largest um, digital, you can call them agency. Uh, they were under Accenture, but mm. they were kind of semi-independent on their own. I joined Salesforce itself. So Salesforce, obviously one of the bigger software vendors. Um, we had a group there that sort of acted as a consultancy within Salesforce. And then I moved from Salesforce um, to Deloitte Digital, which is the, from my understanding, based on headcount, we are the largest digital consultancy in the world. You must know a lot about consulting then. <laughs> um, I remember our last conversation. So I interviewed Andre before for my podcast roots. He was selling Ninja Turtle comic books for yeah, I pesos. <laughs> grade three, I think I was. I was drawing Ninja Turtle comic books, so and that's why I made money. You were a consultant already at grade yeah. three. Yeah, so. that's it. I was selling the dream. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so a lot of the people at Swarm are emerging consultants. And you've done almost, I think, all flavors of consulting, mm -hmm. 
right? So just building your own, joining an MBB, um, do, doing like a top four one and like a an Accenture as well. So what's your general advice basically for someone who wants to join one, do consulting for the first time? There's a couple of gotchas, I think. I think people generally, when they go into consulting, and I've noticed this with, because we, I, um, I also handle a lot of um, what we call grads or graduates. So in Deloitte, we have a graduate program um, when people are in university and they, it's almost like our, in the Philippines, we have the OJT. So similar kind of thinking. Um, and then if you're, if you impress us enough, you kind of, you're invited back. I think the general thing I've noticed is that a lot of people who go into consulting aren't quite sure of what's required or what's expected of a consultant. I think that's the, that's the starting point. People going like, what does it mean to be a consultant? Um, and by the term, you're like, oh, consultant means somebody consults you, right? It's like, yeah. Um, the best way to think about it is you are expected to understand their, your clients, not when I say them, I mean your client's industry, their business, um, and they're going to you for advice on how to, you know, if they're going to you in your digital consultancy on basically how to be more digital, right? how to be, how to transform the business, how to, how to re reimagine or rethink, you know, their, their, their current approach. So, um, the expectation when you go in, especially depending on your level, obviously if, if you introduce yourself as a grad um, consultant, they're not going to be expecting that sort of strategy from you. But they're, when they engage with a consultancy, they're expecting that level of um, maturity. Like they've seen you do this before. And I think it's a big deal. Like their um, clients, no matter their size, are always a bit nervous. They're always thinking, oh, I'm about to put out all this money. Will this work? And so demonstrating that you can deliver building that trust um, is a big part of this. And then that's outside of everything else that you're doing. Yeah, that's, that's almost like agnostic to what type of consultant you are, right? You can be a digital consultant, you can be a design consultant, you can be an ID consultant, but across the board, building that trust and then giving them confidence that, what, that you're there to help them and that they can trust you is one of the biggest things. You've specifically been a design consultant, right? And uh, I think we have opinions, especially if you're in the design bubble, where people navel gaze around button sizes mm. and layouts and, and and color palettes and stuff. Like, how how do you break out of that shell and mm. understand what it means to build trust with client? Like, how do you actually do that? Let's let's take a step back because I think it's not. Um, I, I don't want people to feel like they're like, especially if you're that you, you're designing that space, right? That's there's a you're delivering you're delivering value when you're obsessing over colors and buttons, still, right? So I'll take a step back and kind of point out that in here in Australia, at least, there are different. Um, uh, I want to use the word uh, spheres. I think it's a better phrase, and in almost like a Venn diagram, the spheres overlap, right? You have in Australia, what we call service designers, so we design the service level. I'll use a Philippine example, right? Designing the service level would be designing the services across global subscriber journey, right? So, the moment you 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 contact Globe, and then the touch points, you know, the website, the kiosks, the physical stores, that's part of your experience, your service experience. 
because the globe, um, the whole ecosystem is a service, right? They're servicing you. And so you're designing all the touch points, right? So that's the service design level, right? For those specific touch points, you have, in the study, we call them, those are where the UX designers fall into. So I'm designing, if I'm a UX designer, I'm designing a touch point, which is the website. So I'm designing the globe website, or I might be designing the interactive kiosk, whatever, app, right? UX, UX, UX. Then you have the UI or interaction designers who are then designing or producing the assets. And so in Australia, when you level up you, you know, in the visual design UI journey, you're usually designing the whole brand identity, right? So the assets connect to the brand so that you maintain and you, you create that assurance that um, that you are, when, every, when anybody interacts with Globe, they know it's a Globe interaction, right? You're creating that consistency visually in, in, in the interaction space. And then when you, when, when you're part of the production team and delivery and implementation, you are also ensuring that there is no, well, there's a term that we use, it's um, experience debt. So experience debt is, let's say you created a button, a blue button, you click the button, it turns purple after you've clicked it, right? Like the standard stuff. If there's a globe touch point where that's different, people learn something else. The, the, the meaning changes, right? And so a good example of this is, you know, on Facebook, when you click the link and you have an external link, it pops up vertically, goes like that. That's an experience that Facebook has designed. So now, you know, every time something pops up vertically, it's an external link. If we change that to left and right, every time you click something, you're not quite sure what you're looking at. So do you see what I mean? Like there are these levels that expand depending on where you are. And so um, in a roundabout way, what I'm trying to say with that thing around the, go back to that thing you're pointing out, which is the buttons, you know, how do you break out of that? Or I think the, I think the question you were trying to ask was, how do you explain the value of that to, um, to your client? And that's sort of what those spheres are about. And so if I go back to that whole interaction thing, um, when it comes to experience debt, that also translates into technical debt. So if I'm a developer and I'm a team of developers and I only have to do this button once, I don't have to keep redoing it, right? So there's no technical debt and I've reduced experience debt. And so that's from a button perspective, it's it looks very simple, but explaining that to your client, I'm saving you money. And the other translation to that is, if your, your customers aren't confused, they're not calling your support helpline. They're not going, hey, I've done this and how come it's not working? So understanding those elements and how they cascade, you know, it's like if you press a button, there's all these things that happen if it goes wrong. Being able to communicate that to your client is you know, what they're looking for. They're like, oh, I see. Now I understand why you're obsessing over it. Why you're not just saying, yeah, just, you know, just put any buttons. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like we're saving you money. So essentially, it's speaking their own language, right? Yeah. So reducing costs or uh, avoiding technical debt because it translates into expenses and developers are expensive. By understanding their business and understanding what matters to them, you kind of almost avoid the jargon does that make sense? Because you're not talking in design speak. You're talking in their language. I, I kind of want to ask you how you started out when you were doing your own consultancy, right? At Hugo Manila. Like, how hmm. did that play out with you? Because that was, your, I think that was your first time 
doing it, right? That was my first time running my own gig. I, I was a designer for a UK-based, um, you call, they call them boutique shop, right? Um, I was their lead web designer for a bit. But I think that the transition, the sort of growth of my career, I think, is... So I started doing the visual work. Um, and I think the, the thing that I found hard was being able to give normal... Uh, when I say normal, I'm talking about smaller size clients, Right, um, the ones who run their own business. I think that's a good example of one. Right, um, maybe less than thirty employees. Trying to explain to them the value of branding was tricky, and and so what happened was that my pathway was like, okay, I'm struggling to explain to them why branding is important. So I moved towards more of a UX approach, which is more measurable. So I, then I could at least explain to them this is why it's important because. I can check that people aren't dropping out of your website, et cetera. And so that sort of expanded. And a lot of the growth in our consultancy in Hugo was in relation to that. Because by giving evidence and confidence, people were like, oh, these guys actually know what they're doing. And so that expanded it. Um, that led to a few clients that looked beyond the digital, the app space. They wanted to do kiosk, physical. That's what led to service design. And so when I started doing that level of design, when I still had to do measurable things, but I had service design sort of looking at the whole ecosystem, um, that sort of changed my, let's say, appreciation for what design can do. Because I felt like, okay, I can actually design something that would change your life experience. Right? I can make the, like the going back to globe, I can make the example, I can make the experience of um, signing up for a mobile account feel smooth and seamless and you can expand it into different like, like that being able to create that was powerful and so that's why i moved to like i leaned towards that a lot harder than i used to do in say the branding space so there's an evolution from just branding to to ux conversion focused uh you know communication to just organically evolving your career to being a service designer where, where you yeah. can influence a lot more uh, in, in the domain, right? Um, yeah. And when you're a consultant, right? Like I find that you will have to match these, like let's say, skills with specific domains, right? Like maybe healthcare, or uh, you know, government, or finance, right? When you're not a domain expert in any of those, like how do you handle that? Mm. And does that influence like trust between you? as a design consultant and your mm -hmm. client? What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. So it's a, that's a really good question. Um, that happens a lot because you tend to change clients. Um, there are periods when you're just with a client for like three months and there's a period when you're there for like three years, right? Um, the, the one thing I found is that you just have to be really honest. Um, you have to, what your day one is basically you telling them, hey, listen, I am not an expert in your industry. I will lean on you and your SMEs or you know um, subject matter experts for a little bit until I, you know, I gain enough confidence to to understand um, the intricacies, right? And most of the time, they're very understanding. They understand that you are the expert in digital or design. You are the expert in technology or IT, but you're not an expert in finance. And so they will, um, they will give you leeway in that sense of like, 
you want to ask them questions and they will, as long as you set it up right and you set up their expectations right, they're more than happy to answer that. If I were to give, let's say, a, an example, um, it was for a, I'll just say that they're a commodities industry, very, very large, billions of dollars, global exporter, etc. They're I did a workshop with their finance team and they, I think the finance team in one location was like 50 people. Um, so it was just one team in one location, right? That's to kind of give you an understanding of like the size of the company. Um, and then when we did this journey mapping exercise to understand, because I said to them, I'm no expert. I need you guys to help me unpack what you do on a day-to-day basis. And so we did a journey mapping exercise and it spanned three walls in their meeting room. What was fun about that was that not only did I learn, you know, what they had to do on a daily basis, they realized how much, well, crap they went through on a daily basis. They looked at the walls and they were like, who the fuck would sign up for this? So it was really interesting and powerful for both of us because I learned something and they learned that, holy shit, we're so inefficient. And so that actually um, almost was like a eureka moment. And then they, they went, okay, let's work together and let's try to streamline this whole process. So you know, as we learn together, but you know, the effect was really good. It's always the mapping exercises and the and the front end back end stage things. Yeah. <laughs> my, my my joke there is that once once you expose the journey, people realize just how bad the journey is. They don't realize it until you until you actually do map it. We love journey mapping at Swarm, and I think most you know uh, client conversations should start there. And whenever I do my own consulting, right, even for just small uh, founder-led projects, it's almost, it almost always starts with, with the journey. But are there other, other frameworks that you use, uh, uh, different um, exercises? Like maybe it, you talked about service design, like service blueprints, that's kind of the same thing, right? Or uh, are there any other frameworks that you'd recommend to, to, to designers listening now? I'll, I'll, I'll cover that journey stuff. So. Um... So here, at least in Australia, journey map and service blueprint, two different things. Um, journey map is a bit more focused on your experience. I, when I signed up to this, I felt this X, Y, Z, right? Blue, uh, service blueprint is a bit more process mapped. User clicks this, enters this, and then there's like the um, associated elements. We have this um, approach when we do when we do the interviews, the initial sort of unpacking, so we, you know, you do the initial one-on-ones. Um, I was teaching this for a while because just to add, I also do teach um, design. So I we there's something um, I do in, in depending on the project, which we basically uplift the capability of the client. So we teach them a little bit about service design, but not you know not in a demeaning way or a way that makes them feel like oh I don't know anything. It's more of like here's a here's a different way to think about things. So we teach them design 101. Um, And so one of the things that we try to do is that when we're doing the initial exploration interviews is we have this approach called the five P's. So the five P's is um, process. I don't know if you've already heard this, but process, people, place, products, and performance. And so the trick there is that you then ask someone, okay, talk to me about your day. And And they tell you, oh, I get up. Um, six in the six a.m. Right, that part is process, and you go like, oh, okay, and then they go, and I reach for my phone, and I okay, the phone is the P, is a product, and you go, okay, what do you do in your phone, and then they tell you that's another process. What's your what what app do you do do you use to to check that? 
They mentioned that. That's another peak product. And then they say, I, I contact my boss. Oh, yeah, through what? Email? Another product. Another process. Another person. That's P, another P, people. So you just map out all these little steps just through the conversation. And then what happens is that you'll have this journey of five Ps. And like you actually have this really robust, almost pseudo service map of the journey with all the little elements broken down. And then as they're going through it, ah, oh, and this part when it takes so long, it's like, oh, it takes so long. That's performance. That's a, and then I walk into the shower to, oh, that's a place. So you see how these, all these P's start to pop out just by doing that um, exercise. You do that three or four times, um, an initial group of people, and then you'll have this pattern. And when you have this pattern, you'll see where all the pain points are because they'll all sit at the same, around the same place. And you, and then you create this, um, because you start collecting it in uh, post-its, you'll see all the post-its jumbled in one area. And you say, ah, oh, this is where people have these common areas, common pain points, common tools, common. That's a, that's a technique we use. Um, trying to think of another one. So many. Um, one of the things I think that people <laughs> underestimate, yeah, I know. Um, it's such a loaded question. One of the other things that I think people underestimate is the setting up of workshops. I, I think that's one of the things that I've, I've, definitely appreciated the value the more i've done this like over the years you need to you know that joke when you have a meeting for a meeting you need to have a workshop for a workshop and it's not even like the higher you go the with the people you're workshopping with the more setup you need you're going to do a workshop with the ceos you got to do a workshop with let's say there are five like five bosses before you do that five boss workshop you're going to have to do a couple of workshops with them individually and so you're, and you understand the dynamics of, yeah, yeah. You need to understand that, that role, that, that dynamic between them, the, the relationships and what individually, what they're trying to do. And the reason for that is when you get to that five person boss workshop, you have their interests, their goals, um, covered, you understand their perspectives and you don't walk into effectively a war zone of, you know, high power people disagreeing with each other. Mm -hmm. So you have to do all the setup up front. That's a lot of workshops, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's, it's funny that the, the deliver better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, you don't have to say it's a workshop too. You can just sort of, Hey, can we have a, a, a conversation for, for half an hour? And you kind of almost like build it up like initial conversation. And then you go, can we meet again for an hour, you know, in the coming days to cover some of these topics. So you're, you're, it's almost like stealth workshopping. And then as, and it's in your kind of just gathering things. And then after, let's say two weeks of individual workshop, you know, stealth workshops, then you go into the full client one and you come in really prepared, you know, everyone in the room and you've built a relationship, you've built trust and you have all their goals ready. Then you have a successful workshop. That's really smart. I've never thought of it that way. Well, being someone who has never worked at that scale, at least. <laughs> um, the stealth workshop method, we will keep that in mind. <laughs> but it's all, it's really important, right? Like if you're working with uh, corporates and enterprises um, and people with a, with like an open innovation mindset, just knowing the power dynamics, who wants what. I think a lot of people underestimate or not underestimate, but I'd say um, don't fully appreciate the value of those individuals when it comes to progressing your work. 
Um, at the end of the day, the the ones making the decisions are human beings. They're not they're not AI, right? So you're going to work with people. You need to understand how they work. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter how pretty your thing is if if you're not all aligned and you've not built that trust. You're going to have you're going to basically try to upsell. You what you want to do is you want to bring them along for the journey. You don't want to knock on the door and then open and go, hey, guess what I've got? Here's a shiny thing. And they'll be like, hold on, hold on. I didn't ask for this. You can see, my, it's, it is like, uh, you know, you're knocking on the door like a salesman versus, you know, this guy goes, hey, I know you. Come in. Let's sit down. Let's have dinner. It's a very different dynamic. I love that so much. And I want to implement it right away. <laughs> well, at least the way we build, you know, uh, community at Swarm, it's like, we just don't want to sell stuff to people, but, you know, mm. like focus on genuine human relationships and uh, not about, it's not about just transactions, right? But um, just giving value to one another, basically. Mm. Um, so I wanted to understand, like, what, what are your biggest challenges? Basically, right? Like as a, as a, maybe you're a senior, considered a senior consultant right now already. Cause like the four years ago, last time we spoke on Roots, you were like an associate manager <laughs> for, for design, but the, mm. now you're like super up there, right? Like how did the challenges evolve for you? Like what challenges are you dealing with now on a day to day basis? I think when, you know, going back to that discussion we had about uh, the thing I was sharing about producing stuff, right? So I think when we last spoke, I was part of that, that, um, that area of like we're producing stuff to, and we're trying to communicate the value of what we're producing, right? Um, I'm probably in an area now where we are trying to show and share with our clients the the value of what we do, maybe two steps above. Um, but I'm also as part of that, as a consultancy, the value that you're delivering is your talent, and when I mean talent, I mean it's the people in the consultancy, like. Deloitte is not going to exist if the people at Deloitte are no no good. Like it's as simple as that. Like I said in the beginning, they go to you because you're the experts, right? Like that's so the quality of the people are are paramount to our whole value prop. Um, so for me, my challenges now is sort of understanding what a client would need, sort of like framing that, going this is what you guys are actually would you know help you, and here are the people that would help you deliver it. So my challenge is, it is a little bit salesmancy, but it's almost I would, I would align it closer to, it's almost um, more like analysis and planning. So I'm trying to analyze the opportunities, um, the challenges of the client, and then going okay, well, in order to address that, here's the here's the team makeup you need. So here's this here's your structure. This is this person and is an expert in this, and they'll be delivering this element. From so that's sort of where my, my current challenges are, is, is um, a mix of anal analysis and resourcing. Basically matching the right talent to the right problem and the, the expertise matching, right? And the makeup of that team. Yeah, I, I joke. It's a bit like trying to put together the Spice Girls. Because <laughs> they have to get along. They have to get along. You <laughs> cannot put five smart people that hate each other into a team. They, it doesn't work. I don't care how smart those five are individually. It doesn't work. They, they will. I mean, they how will... do you apply to how do you apply design in that you know, in that process? Like for, forming yeah these teams together and making sure they jive. It goes back to the. You remember what I said about the workshop to a workshop. It's 
that's the approach. You you you'll have an initial coffee chat. You have a conversation with the person. Try to get their gauge their vibe. What are they interested in? What are they passionate in? Um, because somebody might be really passionate in, uh, let's say, sports. Right. I'll just give you an example. Right. Sports. So this person is. I'll give you a profile. I'm not saying this is a real person. I'm just going to give you an example. Right. So this person is a um, creative director type into sports. You know, very outgoing. A strong personality, pretty charming. So you've got this person, you're like, all right, good. That person's personality makeup along, and you can do all the analysis, NFTs, you know, I joke NFTs, but you know, I mean like the the Myers-Briggs and all that stuff. But you can, you can do all those things and they're all helpful. So you have that, you have one archetype now and you go, this, will this, based on the client that I've met, Will they get along? Right? And so that's check one. They have to get along with the client. That's the that's the very first thing you need to check. Um, the second one would be, then if you're adding to the team, you're now looking, okay, who would they get along with? So, you know, if this is my leader, I need my leader to get along with everyone below them. And so I, I then interview the other folks and have a chat with them, see what, because they might be into sports. And then I speak to this person who's this fantastic designer. And I go like, what are your thoughts on sports? And they go, I fucking hate it. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, we might have some challenges. But here. is that a room for disqualification already? Like just no, because no, no, the, no, no, the no. hobbies don't no, It's one of the things. We're just like, okay, what else do you like? What else? And then they're like, oh, I have, I have a dark sense of humor. And I'll be like, okay. That might work with the sports person. Sports person, and you might not talk about sports, but you might have the same sense of humor. So I'm like, all right, all right. Mm. And so this whole, like like I said, it's like Spice Girls. <laughs> You're trying to put together this team. Um, and it's funny because when the team gets along, they really, they deliver. Like I can, like I know this, there have been studies and they've, they've done all these, um, like I'm sure Google's done all these analyses on it. Yeah, I, I can tell you from first-hand experience, it's true. Like, I can get two experts, two, you know, high-level people, and maybe there might be one person who's not always delivering. But that person is not always delivering because they get along with everyone else. They step up. It's interesting to see. You'll see the, the, the a low performer become a, you know, raise their bar because they get along with the team. Versus if you had all the high performers, you'll actually see them suffer when they don't get along with each other. So you're thinking, oh, I've got a dream team, you know, I've got like the LA Lakers or something like that. I've got LeBron and, and so, but they don't get along. And suddenly you see all the performance levels drop and like, shit, what's happened? Um, and so that's where the, the challenges are. It's trying to make sure you create this culture within each project. But what if you're like, let's say you're, an independent consultant, mm. right? And you're forced to work with specific teams or clients that have their own internal teams. What would be your advice to them? And, you know, just building a layer of trust, communicating mm. better and building yeah. relationships. So it, it's funny say that because that's, um, so one, I'll just say straight away, it's, that's tough. I think let's let's make that clear for everyone who's who's going who's in that you know like um, I feel a lot of people go into that situation. They're going, "Is it me?" I'm like, "No, no, no, no. It's tough. If you're a single consultant and you're joining a team, you are effectively you're the new kid at school, right? You're the new teacher or something. 
and all the kids are just like, who the fuck is this teacher? Right. So you've, so you've got to earn your, it's the same challenge when you have to earn your stripes and you have to earn their trust. Um, but you need to go with the mindset that there, there will be a level of, um, you're not quite part of the circle. And so you have to go in with that mindset and go, okay, how do I build trust? Can I have a coffee catch up with someone? Can I get to know this person? And you do that same process again of like building trust and having a chat and, and being part of their family. And it's it takes a little bit longer because um, you don't have someone. So it takes a little bit longer to deliver value because you don't have someone from your team to help you. Yeah, you can go to you. If you're if two of you are together and you go there, you can go, hey, can you do this? And I'll do this. And you're like, yeah good job. And two of you work together, right? You can't pass that work on to the client <laughs> most of the time. So it's all on you. So you're doing two things. You're doing two jobs here. You're, you're building trust, you're building a relationship and you're delivering work. I want to make that clear that it's tough. Like the, the advice there is, you know, don't, don't expect it to be a walk in a park, go in with the mindset that you are the new teacher, the new student, the new school. Cool. That's really helpful advice. So we actually do have a teacher in our team uh, as warmly internally, like shout out to Pia. She's actually a community lead. <laughs> and I was like, oh, who is this teacher joining our team? <laughs> so just, you know, shout out. Um, but, but that's cool. Uh, and it, it's, it is tough. Just going back to like the, the new grad mindset, right? What are the highest leverage things you can do to progress your consultant career faster? Uh, is it just everything that we've talked about? Are there any other mental models that you want to adopt? I've, all, I've been trying to find this quote for ages. I know Kobe said it, but the, and I mentioned this in the other podcast about understanding the game. Like, don't just be the best player. Also, like, also know the game. When I was starting out, I sought out high-value clients. That was one of the things that I tried to do. I wasn't trying to find a client just to pay the bills. I was trying to find a client that had high potential. One of the very, not first, but very early on, um, because I was trying to do it, I was just like, um, and the reason for that is because actually when I, when I mentioned that UK um, studio, we were doing like really small websites, like for really small mom and pop shops. Um, Like one of them was like a, I can mention this because they're gone now, but it used to be somebody was selling bouncy castles. I don't know if you guys know that, but it's the blow up castle and you kids jump on it, <laughs> that sort of thing. That's not a high value client. Like you know what I mean? <laughs> so, hmm. um, and so funny enough, what I did was I actually looked for one here in, uh, sorry, sorry, here when I say kids back in the Philippines, um, in the Philippines, someone who did uh, shipping. And so the, what they were trying to do is, um, uh, it was, they were trying to do what um, LBC is doing now. You know, when you buy online, it goes into a little, um, like a foreign mailbox, and then they bring it to the Philippines, that thing. So they were they were trying to do that. And this was years ago. This was, oh, God knows, 2006 or something, um, a long, long time ago. And so I tried to I tried to set that up. And the reason for that was, and we did build out the website, but the business didn't continue. But the reason for that was because that was a good demo to other clients to kind of go, look at this thing we built, it's complex and it's valuable. And so that's that was my focus um, very early on. I kept looking for those clients that I can 
put on my portfolio and go, look at this one. They're big. They're high value. Um, and that was what I felt, I think, accelerated us the most because we ended up you know, doing work for Envision. Obviously, that's a really good way to, you know, hey, we, we designed for this company. They're worth $3 billion. So um, it gives a lot of people pay attention to that. And I actually worked with one of the first clients was actually co-founder of Skype. Um, and then I don't know if you guys know Russ Yusupov, but he was a co-founder of Vine. We did work for like, yeah, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly for all these people. And so being able to speak to that with other clients was, yeah, like I said, highly valuable. So yeah, just do good work, but be selective. Our core offering, honestly, is just give the high value clients through, you know, these technology consultants, um, like we, we do the matchmaking, but like, I think it's just tough, right? Like if, if you're starting out and obviously not everyone will have Envision on their portfolio. Mm, we didn't. Yeah. You, you started with a mom and pop <laughs> we shop. Did start, we started with bouncing That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> the bouncy castle. So find your, you're saying find your bouncy castle to start with. And yeah. then I, I, gradually the transition to... I, no, I was actually like, oh, I don't want to keep doing this for the rest of my life. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you find something else. And that, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was like, who's a high-value client? Um, and that's where that's where I went. Like um, the logistics uh Yeah, the client. logistics one was the one that I think was the first demo mm-hmm. to kind of go, this is not a website. You know, this is a full-blown you know, digital service business. And we did the front end, back end, blah, blah. That was the, that, that's what I mean. Like it's a high, it was a high value demo to show what we could do. Don't shy away from more complex projects where you can really demonstrate the value that you offer, not just the design stuff, but, you know, be, being very strategic, uh, actually completing the work and publishing that like as a success story that mm. you can d- then show off to, to other clients who can refer you more good work in the future. Yeah, you'll be surprised how well, how connected they all are. Um, I think one thing I probably didn't talk about is that when when we were running the consultancy in Manila, we've, we, we, I'd say 95% of the focus was on foreign clients. Um, the interesting thing about this is that they all kind of, we the reason why we never advertised was because they all just talked about stuff to each other. So we got referred like, for like seven years straight, just referrals. We There was not a single penny spent on advertising. It was all like when the guy from the the co-founder of Skype was like, oh, thanks, you guys did a great job. I want you to meet my friend. Turns out his friend was like the co-founder of this. I want you to meet my friend, the co-founder of this. And like, it just went on and on and on and on. And I was like, cool, like seven years, never never advertised. And referrals are the, the best possible way to, to get work, you know, and... That's amazing. <laughs> Referrals are superior according to our intern Ashley under our back channel on Slack. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's our philosophy, honestly, right? Like warm referrals. And even when you're uh, referring talent, right? If you're fully booked, referrals are always number one. Um, I'm, I want to ask you about just being at the beach. So to us, this is like a relatively new concept, like, What's your understanding of being at the beach? Because as we understand it, as far as like, you're not under a particular project yet, but you're like kind of learning new stuff or like meeting people. I think the term for us is bench. 
So you guys call it the beach. We call it the bench. The bench. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. so it's like in sports, like you're in the bench at the moment. So you're not on, you're not on court. Um, there's there's a lot of positive ways to to affect that, and uh, and I'll I'll just share like this is general like all the consulting um, firms in Australia do this, so it's nothing new. Um, when you're on the bench, it's bid time, and you are hunting for bids, um, like all the time you're hunting and hunting and hunting you're, you're looking for you know um we have them in government they're called rfqs or requests for or rfps or requests for proposal rfqs is request for quotations or and then all these other requests for you know basically the whole point is that it's a bid like you're trying to you're responding to a bid or you're searching for a bid and that that's the core element so it's a mix of bid work and self-teaching so, you know, if you want to upskill in anything, that's a good time to do it. I think the key thing there is that the bid work, especially if you're presenting in front of clients, is actually extremely good training because effectively it's the same skill set you'll need to run a workshop or facilitate, you know, a co-design session. It's the exact same thing. So getting people to practice, putting together a presentation and then walking potential clients through it and then even if you want to if you want to make it interactive even better right if you know how to make it interactive but not cheesy and you know it's it's that it's a level of pride it's like learning and creating opportunities at the same time that's really the thing that we do oh i'm interested in that like how do you make it creative without being cheesy with no like float floating castles <laughs> bouncy castles <laughs> yeah bouncy castles i think the, i think the key thing there is that there's different ways of approaching this right and one of it is obviously one you have to understand why you're in there like what is the ask what is the problem that you're trying to solve and then when you sort of get a gauge of it then you kind of plan your workshop and your presentation and your bid around it um in, in australia we have a process when you do submit a proposal which is like a, a deck this is what we call them our proper and then you have it progresses you, you know you get selected shortlist etc and then sometimes you have this thing called orals and orals is when you're basically presenting in person you might be doing online but effectively you're there the reason for the orals is that the potential client can ask you questions they can go you know what about this why did you say this Mamba? right and you're allowed to present a different um deck similar to what you have but you can you're allowed to present one that's slightly different or more enhanced so that's one approach the other approach is if you want to do a uh, visioning workshop with the client and you go hey you we we noticed that you've um we've submitted this sorry we noticed that you've had this um, request for a proposal we've submitted a proposal would you like to do a free workshop with us you know and they're like what's the what does that involve it's just like oh you just have to spend two days with us or one day with us. doesn't cost you anything. We just need you there in a room for like a couple of hours. Is that something you're happy to do so that we can put, uh, sort of workshop things with you and so we can understand what your, what your ask is more, uh, what your ask is better, etc. That sort of thinking, um, that's another way to approach it. So it's like you a discovery be- process, like you're refining the problem a bit more and understanding yeah. core, core motivations from the client. Yeah. Hundred um, percent. You'll you'll find quite often that the when the client writes out a bid, they think that's their problem. They have this thinking. Oh, I I just need, uh, I just need Adobe. I just need Adobe to be implemented, and I'll be okay. And then when you, you do a workshop, ChatGPT. Like, yeah, we'll use ChatGPT. I just need a chatbot. 
can you guys build me a chatbot? Yeah. And then you do a visioning workshop with them and then you, you, you highlight their true challenges with them and they're going, holy shit, I didn't need chat GPT. Like I need to rethink this in a different way. And it's really, um, it's enriching for them. Um, it's a risk for you because they might go, oh fuck, I don't actually need you. Um, because you've, but at the same time, um, you might've just made them want you more because they, you now understand the problem. But, you know, it's part of that process. It's part of that bid process. That's extremely helpful. <laughs> and uh, that's the mindset you want all of our consultants to have. <laughs> Just essentially being problem-centric, not being super in love with the solution, you know, like the normal product thinking kind of approach. Um, this is uh, I think actually funny that yeah. I, I wrote something about that a long time ago, which is um, when you, do, do, you have level of assumptions, a assumption slide when um if the problem is an assumption you have to go really fast and really like rough you're just trying to flesh it out and then once you validate it okay the problem is true and exists then you move on to the solution the solution is now an assumption you're assuming that the solution is correct you're still, you haven't validated it you know the problem is correct but you now have to explore the right solution for that problem so that's still an assumption and when you've validated both then you can go into refinement because the problem is Validated, the solution's validated, now refine the solution. When you're doing the bid, you're at the very beginning, you're at problem. You're assuming the problem is valid. And if you think that's valid and you're jumping in straight into solution, you might be producing the wrong solution. I have a version of this in a, in a framework, like not, not really a framework, but a general exercise I ask my students to go through, like an assumptions tracker hmm. where they track a risk level. Well, they write down all their assumptions, then add what type it is, and then add a risk level and a confidence level. So if it's like a high risk assumption, like you want to risk that fast and like mm -hmm. try to do some discovery research uh, to understand what the real problem is, or is this even needed in the first yeah. place? Yeah, so exactly. like what you were saying, right? Yeah. Um, the, 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 my advice there is that you treat every bit as a high risk assumption. <laughs> that's when, when, when <laughs> like all the time like you go in there going, oh, well, I don't know if this is true. Yeah. We want Salesforce. I'm just like, maybe you do, but let's check. And then we do like a, a we check. want Salesforce. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so, a, that's so funny. There's, there's a reason why they're, where they make so much money, but it's, it's like, let's figure out if that's what your core challenge is first, right? Cool. That's like super pro consultant like mindset thinking over there. I want to go into like a quick, what do you call this? Quick fire Q&A uh, with questions from the audience in advance, right? Like, so this is from Mark Kabalale. What are common questions that clients ask? There's lots of common questions, but I think the key one there is, um, funny enough, is when, when can you deliver? What can you deliver? Um, and how many people do I need? And so you okay, need to- cool. Yeah. So you need to plan that out very quickly. And this one from Leroy. Leroy is one of our top consultants at Swarm. So he's asking, do you charge based on time or based on results? If results, do you provide a guarantee of sorts? Both. It's a short answer, um, depending on the client. The guarantee of results is an interesting one. What most consultancies do, and this is like for every consultancy, it's not just, um, the, they, they promise deliverables. That's the phrase we use here. And so uh, an example for deliverable is, let's say 
a report. So I'm not promising that I've upped your income by something, something, but I'm promising you a deliverable has this report. Or I might promise you a POC proof of concept and app, or I might promise you a Salesforce installation that has these features. That's part of the contract that you work out. That's the that's a deliverables one. We and um, the common thing is what we call time and materials. So that's what I mean by that. There's a bit of time and materials. But there are no like outcome based. Uh, sorry, outcome focused like um, deliverables. Some some some, some consultancies will have that agreement. It it does happen. Um, but what that there's a there's a um, the reason why that's not super popular is because there needs to be an agreement on risk. So it's shared risk. And this is where it gets really hairy in a contracting level, because basically what you're saying is, I'm going to work with you. Let's say just to give you an example, right? I'm going to work with you. And the end goal, the outcome is you have a 3% increase in sales, gross sales. Let's make it bigger, right? 3% increase in gross sales. Depending on the client, that's, that's really big, right? 3% for Globe is massive, right? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's hundreds of millions of um, pesos, right? But that is reliant on a number of factors that you don't have any control over. You're a consultant, you're, you're helping, you're an expert in your field, and this goes back to the whole conversation. They're an expert in their field. They have to deliver certain things for that to realize. So that becomes quite hairy because now you're saying, okay, we're, we're doing this in agreement based on this, and these are the risks, these are the risks, and therefore we have to mitigate it in case this happens. So there's a lot that goes into that. And you have to be very careful that you don't shoulder the risk just to sell the thing. You know, I want to sell this 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 um, project, I want to work with this client, therefore I'm assuming all this risk. It's like, be very careful what you wish for. You, you want to be... <laughs> You want to be in a situation wherein you're as de-risked as possible, but still able to do the work. Okay, so this one is from Gray. How do you establish domain expertise and find the right pricing? One is you actually do need to know market value of similar skill sets to you. You have to understand sort of what the going rate is. You gotta you have to be competitive, or at least. There's two things you like competitive or you have to be able to communicate your value, right? So a rough example is that let's say um, a design consultant charges seven hundred per hour uh, per day. Let's I'll give you an example, right? Seven hundred dollars per day. That is for a design consultant that's had four years of experience. Right? Cool. Now you understand that. Are you within the four years? Or are you much higher? And so with your clientele, etc., you can charge more and more. If you don't have that level of, you know, like you don't have that, that catalog, you have to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to, you, well, you might be able to, but you're going to have a bit of a struggle <laughs> trying to justify, you know, like, Hey, I want you to pay me 2000 a day. It's like, hold on. Why? Like if you've, if you've only done this for three years, why would I be paying you? Like you, you're going to have to be very good at selling that value. Um, and I think that's the that's the key thing. It's you. There's no there's no science to it. There's no um, there's no like fixed calculation. You just need to understand the value to bring. But on that note, you might be an expert in something that is extremely valuable. So, um, as an example, AWS uh, is a, spe a specialized skill. There is not a lot of AWS people in in Australia. Just to give you an example, right? Therefore, because everyone's fighting over AWS people, 
your your daily rate is a lot higher than let's say if you were doing Microsoft Azure or something because there's heaps of people doing Microsoft Azure. That's it. That you see what I mean? Like yeah, you might have only been doing it for three years, but yeah. there's only ten of you. So <laughs> I'm gonna pay you more to get factory and supply and demand. Basically. Yeah, hundred percent. So it's funny you say that because uh, like we've been speaking with a lot of like AWS people in terms of like actual partnerships and you know the on the on the AWS side and um, the talent side as well because a lot of our hives are gonna be focused on AWS as well. So I'm fun. It's it's funny you say that, and I'm happy to hear that. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question from Gabe Reyes. What's your pricing structure like for a consultancy? Is it per project or retainer? And if it is retainer, how do you handle scope creep? That's our last question for mm. for today. <laughs> no, it doesn't actually work that way. Um, we we have a rate per level. So that's every consultancy does the same thing. That's nothing new. Um, which is you. You know, the charge out, the daily charge out for say a grad is different from obviously senior manager, right? There's like, there's like, there's a scaling ladder there. If you're putting in a team, we have what we call a blended rate. So everyone does a blended rate. This is nothing new for uh, every consultancy does this. And the blended rate is basically going like, how can I mix senior people with junior people? So that the, and we can have a price that the client can afford. And so that might be some magic in there when we go, the senior person only comes in one day a week because so that they only charge X amount. And then the, the next person comes in more often to make up uh, the difference and all that stuff for presence. So we, that's what we call a blended rate. So that's the, I think that's a simple answer to that question. Cool. That answer might help us at Swarm more than at the individual level. Um, because we take care of all the back office boarding stuff, so like just just people can just focus on the work. Hmm. Um, but yeah, last question for you, Andre. What's your advice to all the consultants listening to you right now? Any any final words or thoughts? Anything top of mind? One thing I will just say is that it's a it's really fun, but it's also really challenging, and there is a lot of like there's a lot of time demands. I guess is the the main thing it's 100% not a walk in the park if you're up for like always getting something fresh in front of you like a new challenge every time and you're working with really really smart people and I mean really bloody smart people um, it's a really good place to be if you are easily stressed and you've got anxiety and all those challenges it might not be the right place for you <laughs> it's a it's a high it's a high um What's the right word for it? Um, or right phrase? It's an industry that that will demand 110% from you. Yes, and if you follow Andre's profile, you see how he copes with memes on his on your stories every day. <laughs> the the coping mechanism is there. <laughs> I use that on your own. I also use it with clients. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good icebreaker. Clients love it. <laughs> No. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool that's cool all right uh andre thanks so much for being on fractional and hope we see you see more of you soon okay. thank you and thanks for having me <laughs>